Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Bray and Bible Church. We're continuing our verse by verse study through this fourth gospel. And we have seen that the, the concept of a new beginning has been part of Lazarus' agenda since the beginning of chapter 2. In the account of the water turned to wine in 2 1 through 11, Yeshua was the new wine replacing the old system of Judaism. And then we saw in the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, 13 through 22, that Yeshua introduced a new messianic age with himself as the new temple for worship. Then he enters into a dialogue with Nicodemus in 3, 1 through 21. And we see the entrance to the kingdom of God is brought about by a new birth. In the dialogue with the Samaritan woman in 4, 4 through 42, Yeshua describes a new worship that is in spirit and in truth. And the overarching theme is that Yeshua is replacing Judaism. That system is going. He is moving in. Now, we finished up last week, or no, I guess the week before, we finished up the ending account of the story of the the woman of Samaria at the well. And that count ends by saying, many more believe because of His Word. Now, apart from the ability that Yeshua had to tell this woman all that she had done, He really didn't do any miracles in Samaria. No one was raised from the dead. No one was healed. He's just teaching the truth and people are believing it. It's just really interesting because this is happening in Samaria. And it says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So the Samaritans are the very first ones to recognize that the salvation that Yeshua is offering is for all nations of the world. It's not just for Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles. So we pick up this morning with the next verse. This is after two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Now the two days here are the two days that Yeshua spent ministering to the Samaritans. Because when he was there, they said, you know, please stay with us. And you can understand that, right? If you had Yeshua come visit you, you know, teaching, you'd want to stick around for a while. We go, we want to please hang out with us. So he gives the privilege that's nowhere found in the New Testament that he stayed in the village for two days and taught. And he stays with them and he teaches them. Well, now he's resuming his trip to Galilee that was mentioned way back in 4, 3, and 4. He says he left Judea and went again into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now remember the had there? That's a divine necessity. He had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because it was in a fulfillment of prophecy. The Samaritans who were not my people had now become my people in fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. He had to go through Samaria. So, he says he went from forth from there into Galilee. Now, you may have noticed that Lazarus gives these geographical references in his Gospel. And, and geography plays a kind of a symbolic role in the fourth gospel, the northern regions of Galilee and Samaria, they accept Yeshua. But the southern region of Judah and Jerusalem become increasingly antagonistic toward him as his ministry continues. And it's because of this that Lazarus is going to classify the enemies of Christ. In this gospel, he calls them the Jews. Those of Judea are the unbelieving leaders. These are the ones who are against him. Now, Galilee, up there in the north, that's where Yeshua grew up. About 10 miles north of Nazareth, his hometown, is Cana, where our story for today takes place. 
And this is also where he turned the water into wine. About 15 miles east of Cana is Capernaum. This is where this ruler is from. So let's look at a couple of texts that uh, I think people put these texts together and they get this negative idea of Galilee. Texts such as Acts 2.7. And they were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, these guys are Galileans. How can they be taken in these other languages like this? How can they do that? You know, it gives you an idea, well, maybe Galileans are not all that smart. Acts 4.13 says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. See, from passages like this, people get the idea uh, about Yeshua and about His disciples that basically they're uneducated, they're not that you know, sharp as far as the Torah goes. When I talk about education, I'm talking about Torah. Alright? The only education that matters. Because they're from Galilee. In Galilee, they're just not two smart people. That's the idea. The, the implication here, Galilee is some kind of hick town. People live there basically ignorant of the Torah. You couldn't be farther from the truth with that kind of thinking. Okay? You just couldn't be farther from the truth. People tend to think of Jerusalem. You go down south there. You know, Jerusalem. That's the center of learning. And Galilee some kind of backwoods, uneducated people. But let me give you a little historic truth here. The level of learning and education in Galilee exceeded that of Judea in Yeshua's day. In other words, all the educated people were up there in Galilee. According to Professor Shmuel Safari, who is a Hebrew University professor of Jewish history of the period of the Mishnah and Talmud, he said not only did the number of first century Galilean rabbis known from rabbinic literature exceed the number of Judean rabbis, but even the moral and ethical quality of their teaching excelled that of their Judean counterparts. So these, the highly educated people in Torah, they were up there in Galilee because Jerusalem was a mess. It was apostate. It was a system that was just a big mess, and that's why they rejected their Savior. This is the world that Yeshua ministered. And He spent much time up there in the Galilee ministering. Now, many see a contradiction between the Proverbs stated by Yeshua in verse 44 and the reception of the Galileans in verse 45. I put the verses together. It says, Yeshua Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him. Well, see, they say, well, prophet has no honor... And they assume his own country is Galilee. So, and then it says, well, the Galileans received him. That eh, just doesn't make sense. How, how does he have no honor and yet they received him? Well, the, the question here, the thing we have to solve is, what is Yeshua's own country? The Greek word translated here as country is patris. It can mean homeland, hometown. It comes from patri, which means father in the Greek. And, and it has the idea of his fatherland the place of his ancestors. It's used six times in the synoptics, always to describe Nazareth. Okay? Now, you know the story of what happened to him when he went to Nazareth and preached his first sermon. They tried to kill him. All right? So he, he didn't have any honor in his hometown of Nazareth. And so people are saying, so that's, that's what this has to do. His hometown is Galilee. Nazareth in Galilee. So they identify that. They see Galilee as it represents Jewish soil over against Samaritan soil. See, in Samaria, Yeshua had just enjoyed 
as first unqualified, unopposed, open-heart success. People are just coming to faith. So now he returns to his own people in Galilee, and consistent with the pattern developed so far, the response is at best ambiguous. So because they see Galilee as his Patrice, they see a contradiction between the proverb and the reception of the Galileans. Well, I think a better explanation of Patrice is that Lazarus viewed Judea as Yeshua's hometown, his place of ancestry. After all, the Messiah would be a son of David, of Judaite descent. He'd be according to the flesh, a Judaite. And remember we saw in one eleven that Yeshua came to His own and His own did not receive Him? Who were His own? Well, they were Jews. They were Judeans. So in the broad sense of the term. So I think this, this allows for a contrast with the welcome reception of the Samaritans and the Galileans. So Lazarus seems to apply the term Patrice quite differently from the synoptics. And that shouldn't surprise us. And see, a lot of people try to take this gospel and these things he says and they go to the the synoptics and they say, well, it's this here in the synoptics, so it's this here. And you can't always do that. You know, John is, he, Lazarus just in it, kind of doing his own thing here, telling the story. All right. So it's very different. And that's why it's not one of the synoptics. All right. Verse 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves went to the feast. So here, sometimes it's translated, therefore, this introduces a reason for the Galileans' reception of him that follows. Here's why the Galileans received him. Alright? He left Galilee, almost unknown, and now returns and he's kind of a celebrity. Alright? He comes back and everybody knows him and they're excited. Many Galileans had been to Passover in Jerusalem and so they told, they told their neighbors all things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Everybody's telling him, you know, this, our hometown boy, this is what's going on. This is what they see. Now, what do you think Yeshua did at Jerusalem that impressed the Galileans? Well, miracles? That had to impress them. I mean, you know, here's our hometown boy. You know, we know who he is. And he's down there and he's doing these miracles. And that's, I got to say, that's pretty impressive. And I'm sure that's part of it. But I think many of the Galilean pilgrims to the temple were sick of the way the temple establishment was being operated. Remember, these are kind of the orthodox people up here in Galilee. Alright? They're following Torah, they're studying, and they go down to Jerusalem and they see the nonsense that's going on. They had to get sick. We talked about the corruption that went on in the temple when we did chapter 2. You know, sacrifices had to be offered. The law stated that. They were to bring their sacrifice. It was to be without blemish. But, so they had set up this little thing down there in Jerusalem. The priest set it up. Well, you know, the, the sacrifice has to be unblemished, so we'll be the ones who determine that's unblemished, and we'll give you your seal of unblemished sacrifice. But you have to pay us for the seal. So they get to examine your animal and stamp it unblemished, you know, for a fee, but most of the time, the animal was rejected. Because they also sold their own animals. They were already, you know, so I mean, just this is a scheme going on. And can you imagine being a Galilean who loves God and you're going to worship and you're doing what, you know, the word says to do. And you get down there and you're confronted by these priests who are supposed to be men of God. And they're there just trying to make money. And you got the money changers and you got everything going on there that just is sickening. And so I think what really got these Galileans pumped up 
was Yeshua's cleansing of the temple. I mean, think about it. You hate the system. They've corrupted it. They've distorted it. And now here's this man who's turning over tables, you know, just coming down on the place. And that had to get him excited. Let's look at it. It says, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. They're selling them because, you know, your sacrifice is not good enough, so we'll sell you one that you can use. And that was also a benefit for the travelers. If you're traveling a long way, you don't have to bring your animal. You just get there and buy one. But they were gouging them, all right? And the money changers seated at the tables, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep. You know, if you're a Galilean and you hate this system, can you imagine what you would feel like? Be like maybe what we feel like if someone went into Congress and just cleared the place out. <laughs> you know? Yeah! The corruption. Deal with that corruption. Somebody who, you know, would, we saw coming from our viewpoint. I mean, they saw him as, this is awesome. You know, he sees the corruption that's in this temple just like we do. He says, clearing the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers. They overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. So to the more biblically astute Galileans, this got their attention, I think. And it says, they themselves also went to the feast. They were down there for the feast. Well, let me ask you something. You know, they knew the system was so corrupt. Why are they going to the feast? Why do they have to? Okay, that's right. Because they're just trying to follow the Lord. All right, Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before Yahweh, your God, in the place which He chooses. Now, the place which He chose was the temple at Jerusalem. So, they would have to go down there. And He gives them three feasts. They're called pilgrim feasts because they had to do a pilgrimage to get there for these feasts. Unleavened bread... Feast of weeks and the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed. They have to bring a sacrifice. So, you know, they're stuck doing this basically because they want to do what's right, but it's really been corrupted. All right? In 46, he said, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. All right, so Yeshua is back in Canaan where he turned the water into wine at the wedding. Now, if you compare these two stories, these two miracles, there's a lot of similarities between the miracle of the sun being healed and the miracle of the wine. In both of them, Yeshua's just returned to Galilee from Judea. In both of them, a request is made of Him. Someone comes and asks Him to do something. In both of them, Yeshua appears to refuse the request at first. And then the request is intensified in both stories. And then the request is granted in a mysterious way. And in both miracles, there's only a very small group of people who even know what's going on. This is not a larger display. There's a, just a few people. Remember, I mean, when he, when he made the, the water into wine, there's not a lot of people knew what even happened at that feast. And this one too, he tells the man, go home. Go home, your son's okay. Well, how are we going to have a big show of things then, you know, with, it just wasn't. So they're very similar and there's, they're connected here. So we have this royal official. Now this is, this is from the Greek word basilikos, which means a man who served the king. Now it could be a civil or a military capacity. This man is a servant 
of the king. Now, the official may be a Roman officer assigned by the Romans to serve Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great and the ruler of Galilee. Now, Irenaeus, in the 2nd century A.D., in his writing against heresies, says many ancient and modern scholars have suggested that John's account of the royal official's son is the same event that is recounted in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. So, a lot of people, a lot of scholars connect the story we're looking at here with what Matthew writes about. And you see differences in them, but let's look at the one from Matthew and then compare it to, to what we're looking at here. And when Yeshua entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Yeshua said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slaves, do this, and he does it. Now when Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And Yeshua said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now, the major differences in the stories is that the official in Matthew and Luke is a centurion. And that the concern is for his servant, not his son. And so people say, well, it can't be the same. One's a son, one's a servant. But in the ancient times, a son or daughter who was a minor and under the father's care was considered to be like a servant. So it wouldn't be unusual for a father in the first century to refer to a young child as a servant. Notice what Paul says in Galatians. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a servant. Although he is owner of everything. Now the Greek word pais can be used to refer to either a servant or a son. So if the officer referred to the sick lad as his pairis, the same story could end in the, you know, it could be the same thing basically in different gospels. Son in one gospel, servant in another gospel. Now, there's a lot of similarities between the healing of the official son and the healing of the centurion servant that's in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. In all three accounts, the official is from Capernaum. In all three, a person of rank asks the favor of Yeshua. Matthew and Luke specify the official as a centurion and thus a Roman soldier and thus a Gentile, which I think is significant to the story. Now, in all three Gospels, the issue of healing is evaded by something else Yeshua says or does. So they ask for healing, and He just kind of puts it off. In all three accounts, more urgent requests is made for the healing. And finally, in all three accounts, the healing is done at a distance and confirmed when the officer returned home. So there's just a lot of similarities. Now, I said there, there are some differences. And these similarities and the differences, you know, they create some kind of problem for scholarly analysis. Scholars are arguing about, are these the same? Are they not the same? It's more likely that, you know, some say that two separate incidences occur. They're, they're very similar, but they're the same. And others say, well, is it more likely that there's only one story of healing just described by these different writers? And we'll maybe never be able to answer that question. You know, I think the, some say the differences point to two healings. But most scholars are convinced of the similarities between Lazarus' story and the synoptics that they're describing just the same thing from different perspectives. 
All right, same story, different perspectives. Now, it is my opinion that this royal official of Matthew 8 and Luke uh, chapter 7, it's the same as was described in our gospel. And those passages identified as a Roman centurion. That makes, and it's interesting because, you know, he makes no mention of Yeshua being the Messiah. He says nothing about a prophet like the woman of Samaria does. Nothing about a man of God like Nicodemus did. And that may be because he's a Gentile. So he doesn't understand any of those things. So he's just a Gentile there for some help. And I think the fact that he's a Gentile is important to the story. And I'll explain that when we get to the end. All right. So this royal official is from Capernaum. All right. And Capernaum is up there. You see the triangle, the red triangle I put up there. All right. <clears throat> because Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida formed a triangle up there in Galilee, in the north of Galilee. These cities, each of them are about three miles apart. According to the gospel, 70% of Yeshua's teaching took place in or next to these three cities. Now remember, this is the, these are the elite spiritual people up there. And that's why he's spending his time up there teaching them because they're more receptive. Capernaum, this city where this official was from, is a small village of about 2,500 people. But here's the interesting thing about Capernaum. In its day, it was the Harvard or the Yale. If you take the Mishnah, the record of Jewish thinking, say, from 80, 0 to 100, there's more quotes from rabbis of Capernaum than all the rest of the rabbis in the world put together. The synagogue school found in Capernaum is four times larger than any synagogue school found up until the 1500s. So this was a major spiritual center. This is where the people who were studying the Word of God were congregated. This is where the people who loved the Lord were there. And so Messiah spends his time up there, not down in Judea where they just don't care about anything, you know, spiritual anymore. So this man, he is from Capernaum. Now you can see there Capernaum. I got the yellow line going over there to Canaan. It's about a 15-mile trip. And this royal official... Hears somehow about Yeshua, and despite his superior position, he's a Roman official, and his place in society, he's not too proud to beg this Jewish rabbi for help. When he heard that Yeshua had come out of Judea into Galilee, so, you know, I'm sure he heard more than he just came. He heard some, some important things about what Yeshua was doing. He went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he is at the point of death. So he begs Yeshua, he finds Yeshua, he begs him to make this approximately 15 mile trip to Cana, from Cana to Capernaum, to come heal my son. Please, would you come do this? He obviously believes that Yeshua can heal people. But why? Has he heard some story about a healing? What did he hear? What did he know? He believed that Yeshua could help his son, or he wouldn't have made that trip to find him, alright? Now, he may have believed this because there's instances recorded in the Talmud which uh, those who were seriously ill and even at the point of death were restored by the prayers of celebrated rabbis. So he knows he's a rabbi. He's heard some stories of some miracles. So he goes, this is an important rabbi. No rabbis in the past have healed. He might not know anything else, but he thinks Yeshua could help him, so he goes. I need some help for my son. He's desperate. Well, as this man is imploring Yeshua to come down and heal his son, 
He's in a position to have no way to even know if his son's still alive. No cell phones, no text message, no email. He's 15 miles away. There's no care. He's not, he doesn't know. He, his son's at the point of death when he left. He got to the town. He finds Yeshua. He's begging him. And he's got to be wondering, I hope he's still alive, you know. His son was at the point of death when he left. So this guy's desperate. And he's not coming to Yeshua to say, Rabbi, I want to learn at your feet. Would you teach me? Teach me about God. No, he comes there because he has a need. (laughs) I'm sure you're aware of the fact that Yahweh brings adversity into our lives to help us realize we have a need. Okay? He wants us to understand that we have a need. And this guy with a need is going to the right place. I was reading Jeremiah this past week, and in Jeremiah 39, Yahweh tells Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, he says, I will deliver you on that day. He's going to judge Jerusalem. He's going to judge these people. He says, I'm going to deliver you, declares Yahweh. You will not be given into the hand of the men whom you dread, for I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as a booty. Why? Because you've trusted in me, declares Yahweh. Yahweh delivers Ibn-Melech because he trusts in him. You understand that Yahweh wants us to trust in Him in any and every situation of life? And we learn to do that through adversity. You go through adversity, you trust Him, you learn. He took care of me last time. He'll take care of me this time. So here's this man, he's imploring him. He's desperate. He turns to Christ. You know, in our tough times, we tend to do the same thing. We tend to turn to Christ. Things are bad, but when things are going good with us, it's like, yeah, I got this. I got it. I can handle it. And, you know, think about this. Maybe you'll have to think about it in the future, but how much time do you spend in prayer when you're on vacation? Well, that's because vacation's a special time. Everything's wonderful. Everything's lovely. I don't have any stress. Any prayer. So, you know, maybe the prayer time's nothing. But when you come under Attack, you feel. You tend to get on your knees before the Lord and cry out to Him. He wants that. He wants us to trust Him. It pleases Him that His children trust Him. So this man is coming to Him. He, He has some confidence, some faith in Him, or He wouldn't be there in the first place. Now He says, so Yeshua said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This is a third-class conditional sentence with a strong double negative. You read this and you may be thinking, this guy's son is dying. He's desperate. He comes to Yeshua and Yeshua said, you people, you got to see signs all the time. That seems cruel. That seems rude, you know? And a lot of people see this. Well, the Lord's really strong to, you know, this man because he wants to pull this man here, do this to this man. I don't think he's even talking to this man here. All right? He uses the plural you here, indicating that the unbelief was typical of most of the group that he's speaking to. I don't think he's talking to this man here. The Jews seek signs, but this servant of Herod believed. And we're going to see he believed when there was no sign. So I don't think this replies to him. But he's saying that, and this man is in the crowd. Yes, 
you know, you people need signs, and maybe it pushed the guy to say, okay, that's seeking signs wrong. You just tell me something, I'm going to do it. Yeshua's mention of signs here pointed to the significance of the miracles. The miracles were signposts pointing to God. The Greek word used here, samion, it means a mark, an indication, or a token. It can also mean an event that is an indication or confirmation of intervention by miracles or power. It's used of miraculous acts as tokens of divine authority. Remember what Nicodemus said of Yeshua? He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because nobody could do these signs unless he's from God. So these signs are telling Nicodemus, you you got some connection with God. Not sure what yet, but you got some connection with God. They indicated God was with them. And this is the only place in the fourth gospel where he uses the word wonders here. The word wonders is from the Greek teros. It's another word for miracles. But this underscores the effect on those who witness it. So wonder is the idea. You see it and you're like, wow. You know, and that's what Yeshua is saying here. Unless you people are wowed, unless you see something, you just don't want to believe. What Yeshua says in our text, I think, is similar to the statement that he made in Matthew. Because the, the Jews were always, show us something. Prove who you are. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. To which he replied, He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Pharisees were asking for a miracle that they would prove Yeshua had some kind of authority. So prove yourself. Tell us who, you know, show some sign that we'll know who you are. Well, he says, if you reject the most important sign, which is the resurrecting, we're not going to do anything else. That's the sign you need. And guess what? Yeshua rose from the dead and what did they say? No, they didn't believe it. Didn't have any effect on them at all. The ultimate sign, the resurrection, and they just ignored it because they their heart was not there. Alright? Their heart was not there at all. He wasn't what they wanted. So verse 49 says, The royal official said to him, Sir, he's desperate. Come before my child dies. Why is he in a hurry? I guess he felt if his child died, that's too late. You know? Maybe Yeshua could heal a sick person, but he can't raise dead people for sure. So, you know, he's not... You know, he doesn't understand a whole lot right here. But what you see here is Yeshua's comment about the signs didn't affect this man's mission one bit. He just presses forward, you know. He's on a mission. His son's life's at stake. So he begs him and he calls him sir here. This is the Greek word kurios. It means sir or lord. He's addressing Yeshua with respect. This is the same term the Samaritan woman used of Yeshua. The word here for child here is paideon. Evidently, he was a small boy because this is a diminutive and it's a word that has the idea it's a little boy. Pideon, a child. In these three verses, Lazarus uses three different terms for son. In verse 50, he calls him a weos. Verse 51, he calls him pais. So he uses all these three different terms for child. And so we get the indication here, this is a, a little child. This is a young child. John 5.40 says, Yeshua said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Yeshua spoke to him, and he started off. He's begging him, come with me, please come with me. And Yeshua says, go, your son lives. You know, the man didn't argue here. 
He didn't say anything. He didn't say, I really need you to come with me. It'd be much better if I had you right with me. So, you know, I make sure this happens. If it doesn't happen the first time, maybe you can do something to make it happen. You know, please come with me. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, you know, can you show me some kind of a miracle, some kind of a sign? This guy, you read the commentaries, this guy gets condemned left and right. He has sign faith. I don't know what sign faith is. I know sign field, but sign faith, I never really heard that. You know, you know, it's just, a, I guess they just, he just believes in signs. But this guy's not got any sign here. Nothing. Yeshua says to him, go. And the man leaves. He just leaves. I think that's incredible. What would you do at this point? You found him. You know he can help people. You've heard some things. You know the rabbis have done this in the past. You know, so you're excited. You finally get to him and he says, go, your son lives. What would you do? Run home? I think that's what I would do. But I think, I don't know, I want to drag him with me. You know, like I said, this is the source of help. I don't, I don't want to go all the way home 15 miles and find out it didn't work. Now what do I do? You know? This guy takes the promise and he departs for home, demonstrating that he believed Yeshua could heal from a distance, right? I mean, I don't think this wasn't something common in the writings that anyone had done this from a distance, but somehow he just, he believes him. He's got confidence in Yeshua. I don't know how he came to this. I don't know what he saw, what he experienced. But when a man tells you, go, your son lives. Now, this question, did he believe that Yeshua was a prophet? And says, well, I see that your son will live. So go on home. He'll be okay. And so his son would eventually get better and live. You know, I'd be okay with that. That'd be good. Or was this man, Yeshua, saying he had power and I just healed your son. You know, go home. Whatever, people, this is faith. This is what faith's all about. Faith, you've heard me say it a million times, it's understanding and assent to a proposition. Saving faith is understanding and assent to a proposition of the gospel. You believe Christ died for your sins. That's a proposition. Well, here the Lord says, go, and he tells him, your son lives. He understood the proposition. Your son lives. Okay, I know what that means. I believe you. I'm going. I'm going. This guy becomes a model for what it means to believe apart from signs. He didn't do anything. He just said, go on home. And that's not very spectacular. You know, wouldn't it be better if Yeshua went? The crowd would have followed him, right? Hey, this guy's going to do a miracle. Let's all go and watch the miracle. No, just go on home. Have your private miracle. Now, let me ask you and be honest. What would you do at that point? Would you run all the way home? That would be doubt looking for proof. Wouldn't it? We know from the following verses that the son was healed at the moment the Lord said that. So, you know, what were the servants thinking that were with this boy? I mean, they know that the, the son's sick. He's at the point of death. Their master leaves to try to get help. Well, all of a sudden, their son is like, boom, he's fine. He gets up. He's up. Everything's okay. Well, they're not just going to sit around. I mean, we don't know if he's even found Yeshua. We, we got to go find our master to tell him it's okay. Everything's all right. So they head out to find him to tell him the good news. As he was going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So somewhere between Canaan and Capernaum, the official and his servants meet. And they tell him his son's alive. He's okay. So he inquired of them. So he's like, oh, he's fine. Well, let me figure out what really happened. He said, when did he get, begin to get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
Anything strange to you in that verse? Yesterday. What? Yesterday, his son was healed at 1 o'clock according to Jewish time. All right, he could have made this trip back and been back there by that evening. And believe me, I think I'd have been on the trail. Your son's alive. Let me get back and make sure my son's okay. Yeah. No, he doesn't go back. He stays. As I said, Cain and Capernaum, they're short distance. This guy could have been traveling by horseback. He could have made it pretty quick. He could have been in a chariot as a Roman official. One o'clock. Could have made that trip in short time. But this man evidently stayed over in town where he was. And I think such strong faith had the nobleman's word in Christ. That was it. Christ said it. I'm done. It's good. I take it to the bank. How did he have such confidence? He knew something about Christ, but somehow when he heard those words, people, that was it. The Lord opened his heart. The Lord gave him the understanding. He said, that's it. This is, this is what the Lord wants from us. Just, he says it. That's it. It's done. Because he said it. Because that's who he is. You know, Yeshua calls what this man has here, he calls it great faith. If these stories are the same, he says in Matthew 8.10, Now when Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who were falling, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. It's great faith this man has. This is not your average guy who says, Oh, I kind of believe, help my unbelief. No, he believes him. We see in Luke 17.5, the disciples come to Yeshua and they said, increase our faith. They needed it increased, right? We all do. In Acts 6.10, Stephen is said to be full of faith. In the Greek word full there, play race, it means complete or mature. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul said he wanted to perfect that which was lacking in their faith. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says your faith grows exceedingly. James talks about dead faith in 2.17 and 20, and he talks about mature faith in 2.22. So, if you look throughout the Scriptures, you see this. The Scriptures speak of little faith, great faith, weak faith, strong faith, lacking faith, perfect faith, dead faith, full faith, growing faith, and increasing faith. And I think, people, there are degrees of faith. All believers don't have the same amount of faith. Some people just, like this man, he just trusts God. Some believers are weak in faith. He accused the disciples of that, didn't he? I mean, they're on a boat and the storm's kicking up and they're like thinking they're going to die. Because they didn't have a clue who he was yet. Some believers have dead faith. I think you have to have faith for it to be dead. Some believers, they have trusted Christ. They're not doing anything with their faith because they're not being educated. So, basically, what we need to ask here is, how do we increase our faith? How, what determines this? Well, I think there are two main factors that determine the strength of our faith. First one is our knowledge of God. The main explanation of the troubles and the difficulties that most Christians experience in their lives is due to a lack of knowledge about God or theology proper. We don't know Him, therefore we don't trust Him. Because you really can't trust who you don't know. You know, people say something to you, well, do you trust me? 
No, I don't even know you. Why would I trust you? That'd be foolish. And so many people like that with God. They've heard about Him. You know, maybe they've even come to faith in Christ. But they've never spent any time in the Word. They've never been taught. They've never been trained. And so they don't know how to trust Him. Theology proper. We need to study the revelation that God has given of Himself and of His character so we can know. You know, and as you read through the Word of God and you see the character of God, man, it just strengthens your faith. This is how you develop into a strong faith. The more you know God, believe me, the more you will trust Him. Martin Luther said to his Reformation opponent, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. I think that's true of most Christians today. We really, you know, we've moved away from the supernatural. We moved into the natural. and our, We just think of God in human terms. And we limit Him in, in our own terms instead of just trusting Him. We need to study the Word so we can know Him. As I said, it's hard to trust somebody you don't know. Our faith is weak because we're not acquainted with the Word of God. We don't read it. We don't spend time in it. And in not reading, we just don't become acquainted with the God of the Word. And so our trust in the character of God is deficient. We need to spend time with them. Now, we can make up excuses because, you know, believers will give you excuses. I mean, I got this and that going on. I go, you know. And so basically, yeah, you have no time for God. But you'll, when you need Him, you'll be calling Him. All right? So the second element to increasing our faith, well, in Romans 10, 17, you know, I think you're familiar with this, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. The more you're in the Word of God, the more you see God act, the more you understand His character, the more excited you get about it. The second element in increasing our faith, though, is applying what we know. The application of what we know. A knowledge that never ventures out upon what it knows is not going to be strong. You know, at times we do apply what we know. And we come through problems and difficulties victorious. You know, like David when he faced Goliath. You know, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And you're out there and you're ready to take his head off. No problem. Don't you love those experiences? Yeah. And yet, (laughs) there are other times when our circumstances seem to consume us and we don't apply our faith, like David, before Achish, king of Gath. And we just start drooling on ourselves and acting crazy and scribbling on the wall. Because we're just not trusting our God. And David had to leave there and go to the cave and sit down and say, okay, stop, let's review our theology. And he just goes over his theology and he becomes strong because he realizes who his God is. What happened to that giant killer? He just wasn't applying his faith. He forgot about God. And I think we do that. You know, you think your faith is strong and then you have a trial. You have a situation that causes you to panic and drool all over yourself. And at those times, we need to focus on God. We need to meditate on Him, and we need to apply what we know. And I think another key ingredient here that we neglect often is we need to pull a brother or sister into the situation and say, I could use a little help. Could you talk to me? Could you remind me of what I know? know, I'll tell you one thing I'm absolutely convinced of beyond anything else. God is absolutely sovereign. In a trial, that's one of the first things that seems to slip. And I've had brothers and sisters come along and say, God's still on the throne. That has ministered to me because you're right. I needed to hear what I know because I tend to forget what I know because the circumstances are killing me. And we need each other in those times to come along and say, brother, I know you're going through it right now, but don't remember. He's, don't forget, he's still on the throne. He's there. 
We need to focus on Him. We need to meditate. We need to pray with one another. What's interesting to me about this miraculous situation here that they're both performed in Cana, and they're both prompted by trust. You know, Mary trusted her son to do something to relieve the embarrassment of the host at that wedding. And the father of the sick boy was equally confident that he could rely on Yeshua's help. His first sign came as a response to a mother's trust. And his second sign came as a response to a father's trust. They trusted him. And we have these two signs here. So the father knew that it was at that hour which Yeshua said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. He would see the royal official coming to faith in Christ. He believed. He trusted in Christ. Did this, did this sign have something to do with it? Well, he gets home and his son is you know, fine, just like Yeshua said. It would just build confidence. Yeah, this had something to do with it. He believed him. Now he puts his trust in him. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Now, Lazarus uses the verb Zoe here, lives, three times in this text. Now, Lazarus normally avoids the verb and the noun Zoe except when referring to eternal life. But here he makes an exception. And it seems like he wants us to see the restoration of life here in this child as an illustration to Christ's gift of eternal life. And this kind of prefigures the announcement in the next chapter that Yeshua raises the dead. So he's talking. He's the source of life. He's the source. The child lives. Your child has life. He himself believed. That's the reason that this gospel is written. Remember. Therefore, many other signs Yeshua also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in His name. That's the reason it was written. And here's a man who comes to faith and, and Lazarus is recording this so we can see it. The official believed he trusted Christ. And salvation, people, is only by faith. And so we understand from the rest of Scripture that the Lord opened this man's heart. So he could attain to the things of God. And notice it says he believed in his whole household. This is the first of many accounts where one person's belief affected the whole family. We see this with Cornelius in Acts 10, Lydia, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, Crispus, Acts 18. You know, the Middle East is much more tribal and family-oriented than our modern cultures. And it was not unusual for the family members to adopt the faith of the head of the household. Now, because he trusted didn't mean his family automatically trusted, but they saw what he believed in, and so they trusted too, because they had confidence in him making the right decision there. So this whole family comes to faith in Christ. This is a great story with a happy ending. The man's son is healed, gets his son back, becomes a Christian. But I'm sorry to have to tell you that the stories don't always end this way. Sometimes the child stays sick. Sometimes the child dies. Things don't always go the way we want them to. The Lord doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want Him to. And when He doesn't, we need to trust Him in the midst of the storm. In the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa killed James, the brother of John. Acts 12.2 says, And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When Herod tried to do the same thing to Peter, 
God delivered him. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, the guard in front, the door was watching over the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side, and he roused him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. By faith, Peter lived, and by faith, James died. Peter set free, yet James, who loves the Lord too, he dies. Just because we are Christians and we love Yahweh doesn't mean that things will turn out the way we want them to. All things work together for good. We can count that our God is sovereign. He is controlling the events. And we need to trust Him in the bad times as well as the good. Your witness is so much stronger when you are faithful to Yahweh in the midst of trial than when you're blessed with superabundance. Put yourself in the shoes of James' wife. And then Peter's wife. One's grieving over the murder of her husband and the other rejoices over the miraculous deliverance of hers. Why? Why? There's no why for them. It's not because one was a better person than the other. One of the wife was more of a prayer warrior than the other. It's because this is what God wanted. Peter's wife rejoices and thanks God. What does James' wife do? Was God any less sovereign in the death of James than He was in the deliverance of Peter? Not at all. Is God sovereign only in the good circumstances of our lives? How many of you, when something happens, good happens, you say, praise the Lord? You ever do that? Every time I do it. And a lot of times, you know, something, I save something from break. Praise the Lord. When it falls and breaks, do you say praise the Lord too? <laughs> Is there times we should praise Him and times we shouldn't? Praise the Lord to a Christian. When a Christian says praise the Lord, what he means is everything's going my way. Thanks, God. I mean, we just don't praise Him in the tough times for the most part. God is sovereign over both the good. He's sovereign over the bad. He works in our life because He knows exactly what we need. He is a loving Father. You have to be committed to that. Know that He is an all-loving Father. And that He's absolutely sovereign. And that gives you peace in most circumstances. Believer, understand that no pain, no suffering of any kind comes to your life apart from the sovereign administration of a loving Heavenly Father. Alright, back to our text. This again, a second sign that Yeshua performed when He had come out of Judea into Galilee. Alright, it's interesting. Lazarus calls this a second sign. Alright. Even though he did many other miracles in both Galilee and Judea after he changed the water to wine. We know that he did other miracles. He did a lot of them. But he calls it the second because to Lazarus there's seven miracles in this book. He's going to highlight seven miracles. Just happens to pick seven. You know, a number of perfection. And he picks out seven. And this is the second labeled as a sign. And what's interesting, I think the first sign in this gospel shows Yeshua's power over time. Here we have water and all of a sudden we have wine. Well, that, how does that happen? Well, he ferments it over, <laughs> over time instantly. So he has power over time. And I think the second sign shows us his power over space. He's not there. But he says, your son lives. And boom, his son lives. Instantly healed. Time and space. So Lazarus explained further that Yeshua performed these signs after he came out of Judea into Galilee. Now this section seems to be an inclusio. 
All right, it frames the two miracles in Canaan with two conversations occurring in between them. When verse 46 places Yeshua in Canaan of Galilee, he completed a full circle. From Canaan in chapter 2, Yeshua had gone to Jerusalem, and now he's back in Cana, and this completes the cycle. This is the inclusio. Now, looking back over these three encounters, beginning with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, the capital city, and then with the Samaritan woman, and finally with the Gentile royal official, you see a foreshadowing of the spread of the gospel. You see a foreshadowing of what Yeshua told his disciples in Acts 1.8. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to carry the gospel first to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and finally to the rest of the world. And in these three encounters, Yeshua's taken his message to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, He's taken it to the woman in Samaria. And if this royal official is a centurion, then he's taken it to the Gentiles who represent the nations of the world. And so we see him taking the gospel to the world. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 where he tells Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now the nations are coming to faith with this Gentile servant coming to faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we have so much to learn. I thank you for this centurion's trust, Lord, in you. That you could tell this man to go and he would just walk away, trusting that you had just healed his son. Lord, help us to increase our faith. Help us to spend enough time in the Word of God, Lord, that we know you and that we respond in a biblical way to the situations of life. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Amen.